want to say thank you so much to the Newmans for that testimony. God's amazing faithfulness uh, in times of, of trial. And, you know, it seems like uh, if you've met a person, you've met a hurting person. And uh, we're, we're all in this world and, and uh, suffering through it, waiting for home, uh, making our way there. And, uh, but our, our hope, uh, we don't go through this alone, do we? Uh, we have a hope and we have promise uh, that gets us through. All right, Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 12 and go through chapter 2 and verse 4. In honor of God's word, I want to invite you to stand to your feet with me as we read the passage together. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One? You will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them and execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why, then, do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those that are more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in their net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and he is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch, and I will station myself on the ramparts, and I will look to see what he will say to me, and what I am to give in answer to this complaint. And then the Lord replied, Write down this revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now, Lord, that you would give us just uh, uh, the power and filling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would speak to us uh, through your word. And that, Father, you would give us ears to hear how incredibly relevant this old prophet is. And so I pray, Father, that our ears would be open, our minds uh, alert, and that, God, we would simply be instruments uh, open to receive everything that you would like to speak to us. Speak it freely, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to talk to you about uh, the glorious vision and, and the picture there uh, that you see is not uh, some distant planet. That's not a picture from Mars. That is a shot from the Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, that right there, that desert is the driest, uh, most dead place in the world. 
Some areas uh, in this desert have not seen rainfall in decades. You thought our summer was rough. There's no vegetation except for maybe some wild brush here and there. It is a barren wasteland of sand and rocks and salt flats. Extreme temperatures and high winds make it inhospitable. <laughs> People can't live there. Uh, and neither can much of anything else. No one goes there. No one goes there for a vacation. No one wants to go there. But every so often, on an incredibly rare occasion, something happens in that desert that is referred to as a super bloom. Uh, the super bloom is when all of a sudden this desert, this dry desert, uh, explodes with beauty and color and a variety of native flowers. You want to see it? Watch this. That's the same desert. A super bloom occurs after a period of uh, unusual, rare, heavy rainfall which triggers, this is what's just amazing to me, it triggers dormant seeds. These flowers that, that, that the seeds are just dormant across the desert floor, and then when the rain falls, the seeds germinate and they turn into that. Beautiful flowers. Now on the rare occasion when the super bloom happens, word of it gets out, and visitors from all over the world come to see the site. Well, I, I believe that perhaps a super bloom is one of God's natural ways to, to help us to imagine what a genuine movement of God would look like. A, a revival is a super bloom, if you will. And what strikes me is that the potential for it is always there. It's always existing among God's people. It's just dormant within us. And we're just waiting for the skies to open and to send down rain from heaven. That's true of you. That's true of me. All Christians have the potential within us to, to bloom into something beautiful. We all have it. But many of us are as dry as a desert. Uh, inside, uh, we still have the potential, but, but we are dry and it's gone dormant within us. But if God decides out of his sovereign grace to send down an outpouring of revival on his church, then here's what's going to happen. The dry land will become a garden. The desert will turn into a garden. That's what the Bible refers to, and it says, talks about streams in the desert. And then the people will come. People will come just to see the side of it. I believe that. Well, as the prophet Habakkuk is looking around in his time, all he sees 
is a desert. Everything around him is a dry, barren wasteland. Nothing is growing. The people are dead. And this deadness is taking place in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, That's the southern part of Israel when Israel was split into two different kingdoms. Uh, Judah was in the south and this is a Habakkuk to those people and a people that were called to be God's family or are living like they're orphans. As a man of God, Habakkuk has jealous affections for God's holiness, for God to be respected by his people. And so he's looking around and he doesn't see that happening and he is upset that the people are not acting in the fear and reverence of God that he deserves. And his confusion is twofold because he's, he's frustrated and he's angry at what he sees among the people of Judah, but he's also frustrated with God because God doesn't seem to be acting in a way that deserves who he is, that he is not protecting his own name that's being desecrated by his people. And so he looks around, we saw this last week, and he sees that the people of God are violent, they're unjust, they are just as divisive and filled with conflict as the world around them. They have paralyzed the law, which means they are disobedient to the law. The law has no impact in their lives. And 130 years prior to this, there was a prophet by the name of Amos, and he said the exact same kind of things concerning the northern kingdom and that their injustice would bring about God's judgment. And so in 722 B.C., Assyria swept the northern kingdom away. And now here we have the southern kingdom, and they're doing the exact same thing. Sometimes people never learn. They've lost their way. They are in serious need of revival. They need discipline. They need repentance. And yet God, as it appears to Habakkuk, is not doing anything about their waywardness. He seems to just simply be allowing his people to desecrate his name. And Habakkuk has seen enough. He's seen enough. And so he boldly asks God for penetrating questions. How long must I call out for help and you don't listen? How long do I have to point out all of this violence and ungodliness and you don't respond? Why do you make me look upon injustice? And finally, Why do you tolerate it, this wrongdoing? And so if you were here last week, you remember that God said, all right, you want an answer? I got an answer for you. Be amazed. And they're like going, be amazed, all right. All right, a super bloom's coming, right, Lord? Nope. 
nope, be amazed. I'm going to do something that you would not believe even if I told you. In fact, you saw it 130 years ago. It's not a super bloom. It is the judgment of God. I am going to raise up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, same people, and they are a ruthless a godless people, and they are going to execute my judgment against my people. So it's not surprising then that that particular message doesn't sit well with Habakkuk for several reasons. One, that's just really bad news. And two, that's the bad news he's got to take back and carry to Judah. Am I really supposed to tell the people that? You know, that, 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 that all right, well, here's what the Lord said. Uh, the Babylonians are coming. And, and our holy God is going to allow an unholy people to take us captive. Is that what I'm supposed to say? And so Habakkuk now has some follow-up questions uh, to respond to what God has just told him. So we're kind of uh, eavesdropping, if you will, on this conversation. That's where the message picks up today. Now, before he goes into it and voices his, his confusion, he wants to state uh, something that he is very clear about. He's confused about a lot of things, but one thing that he is not confused about is the character of God. And he says, God, he calls him by his name. In verse 12, he refers to him by his covenant name. A name revealed first to Moses, the name Yahweh. And as you know, every time you see the word Lord in capital letters in your English Bible, that is, that is the name Yahweh. It's all caps. And so he, refer, he calls out to God and he says, Yahweh. Uh, we're your people. He recognizes that, that this God is Yahweh, that he's transcendent, and yet he is imminent. He is the Holy One. He says, you are the Holy One. You are from everlasting. You are eternal. You are pure. You are holy. And by zeroing in specifically on God's holiness, Habakkuk is saying that I know that you are Holy, therefore, sin separates mankind from you. I, I, I totally get that. You hate sin. You hate evil. You, you cannot, your eyes are so pure, you can't even look at it. You are light, and evil is darkness, and those two things never can come together in your presence. And by adding the fact that he is also eternal, he knows that, that nothing about God's perfect holiness has ever changed or can change. You've been holy forever, and forever you will be holy. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not lost, nor can he lose, one single ounce of his holiness. Nor does he lower the bar a single centimeter for any of us. Be holy as I am holy is still the standard. But notice he also acknowledges the imminence of God as well. Because he says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. 
I know that you're, you're transcendent and holy, but you're also imminent, right? While God is high and lifted up, He is also personal. So while He cannot lower the bar on His holiness, He desires for us to raise our bar to be holy before Him. And He is, he is confident that this holy... And, and personal God will never break his covenant with his people. He says, we shall never die. The NIV here says, you shall never die. But it seems to be suggesting, I, I think the ESV has it right, where he says, we shall never die. Of course, God's never going to die. But the covenant you have with us because of your holiness, that can't be broken either. Your people can never go extinct. They, they have never... Uh, been fully eradicated from the earth. Yeah, you've thinned them out a few times. But they've never been eradicated. And you can never break your promise. The second thing he acknowledges is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign, right? He calls him the rock. The rock, the one who is unmovable. He is the unshakable Lord. He is solid. He is secure. He is dependable. He even says that you have ordained them, talking about the Babylonians, you have ordained them as a judgment against us. In other words, you said it would happen. You are the one who is going to make it happen. Your hand is upon them to use against us. So he knows that the Babylonians are simply instruments in the hands of God. They couldn't do it without his permission. So Habakkuk has an incredibly high view of God. He knows that God is glorious. He knows that God is holy. He knows that God is sovereign. He knows that he is immovable, pure. And he also knows that he is a God who is gracious and merciful and loving to his people. And he has formed a covenant with his people that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so his issue in all of this is that he expects God to be God. But it seems in his view that God is acting out of character by ordaining the most wicked people on the planet to enact God's judgment on God's called out people. He says there in verse 13, you whose eyes are, are pure and holy, you cannot even look at evil and unrighteousness. And so are you just, you can't look at evil and unrighteousness, so are you just going to look on as unrighteous people come and conquer the righteous? The unrighteous are going to slaughter the people. Uh, the bad guys are going to beat the good guys. Is that what you're saying? And you're going to remain silent while the wicked devour your people, the people that, that are more righteous than those nasty Babylonians. Is that what I'm hearing? Is that what you're telling me, God? Because I'm just clarifying here because that seems all kinds of messed up to me. In fact, let, let me tell you kind of what that's like. It's like you have made a, a, a bunch, you have made your people into a bunch of fish. And, and we're swimming around in this pond and we have no ruler. 
we're just kind of, you know, we're not even a school of fish. We're just, we're just all going random, swimming our own way. You've made us that. And along comes the Babylonians. Man, they're like a bunch of, of beer-drinking, loud-mouthed, uncouth fishermen. That's my translation. And they are hooking us, your people, by the mouth, and they're throwing us in their cooler, and they're laughing, and they're having a great time at our expense. And then, to top it all off, they decide that they're going to pay honor, not to you, not even to their gods, right? They're going to worship their fishing nets. They're going to put their fishing poles in a pile and bow down to them. It's just simply another way for them to take credit for what they're going to do. They're going to bow before their own strength, meaning they don't bow down to anyone else but themselves, and that includes you, God. That's what they're going to do. And they will never acknowledge that everything they are about to be able to do to us is because you have allowed them to do so. They will never even acknowledge you. They will never worship you. They will never praise you. In fact, they're going to gloat and they're going to worship themselves and they're going to say, how awesome are we? And look how stupid and pathetic these Israelites are. They don't hold a candle to us. They're weak. I bet their God is weak too. Verse 13, he says, man, your eyes are purer than evil. You can't even look at wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent? Why the wicked swallow up those who are more righteous than themselves? That verse right there makes me chuckle. It's not really funny, but it kind of is. Why is it funny? Because he's basically saying, God, you're too holy to allow the wicked to swallow up those who are more righteous than they are. That doesn't conform to your holiness. Those people, you know what those people are like? They are violent. They are divisive. They are unjust. They don't even follow your law, those people. And I hear God reminding Habakkuk, Wait, what, what did you say in verses 1 through 3 to describe my people? Because I, I think what I heard you say was that my people, they're violent, they're divisive, they're unjust, and they don't follow the law. You see, Habakkuk wants justice for all in this situation, right? But he has to remember that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If God's going to judge his own people when they disobey the law, then he's going, okay, I, I get it that you're going to judge us, but shouldn't you judge the Babylonians who are just as godless even more so, how can God use the ungodly to bring judgment against a slightly less ungodly people? But let me ask you this question. 
Who is more culpable and responsible in this situation? Those who know God and have been given the law and know his ways and turn from it or those who have not been given the law, who do not know God and are basically living according to what they do know. Hmm. You see, Habakkuk is comparing the people of Judah to the Babylonians when he should have been comparing them to the holiness of God. God is the standard. God is the standard of holiness, not the Babylonians. It's God with whom we are all compared. Be holy as I am holy. Don't be holy up to the point of being a little holier than the Babylonians. That's true of us as well, isn't it? We're to be holy as God is holy, not just a little holier than the world out there. Habakkuk sees two groups of people. He sees a people that are under the law, but who are obviously failing to keep it. And he sees the Babylonians, a people who are not under the law, who do not acknowledge God, and are vile and prideful and godless. So he sees the religious, and now he sees the non-religious, and they are both equally far away from God. Both of them. And by the way, those same two groups exist today. We don't call them Judeans and, and Babylonians. We just simply call them people. Right? It, it, this is the story like of the prodigal son where you have the elder brother and Jesus' parable and the prodigal son and it ends up that both of them are far away from God, the religious guy and the non-religious guy. Both. Sin is equal. So what do you do in that situation? What is Habakkuk to do? When you look around and you see a culture outside that is increasing in depravity, as well as simultaneously the church in that culture declining, wickedness increasing, the church decreasing. Because that's what's happening in our world today. That's what's happening in America today. What do you do then? What do you do when they see the, that the church keeps being exposed for its brokenness and therefore it now has no voice to speak to the brokenness of the world? What do you do? What do we do? Well, we do what I believe Habakkuk did. Habakkuk in chapter 2 and verse 1 says, I will take my stand at my watch post and I will station myself on the tower and I will look out to see what he will say to me and I will answer concerning and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk stations himself at the watch post, which is basically another way of saying Right? That, that he is going to station himself in prayer. I'm going to station my, I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to pray. 
He, I, 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 cannot, I, have, I will not take a word to the people until I get a word from you, Lord. I just won't. Which is exactly where we must station ourselves today in these days of chaos. We need revival among the people of God and then we need an awakening in our nation. And those two things happen in that particular order. Right? We need a fresh vision from on high. And we need to station ourselves and not move from our post until we get it. See, our, our problem begins when we leave our post. It begins when we stop praying, when we stop waiting, when we just decide that we're just going to act. Right? We come to the conclusion, well, it doesn't look like God's going to do anything. It doesn't look like he's going to fix this. Nothing's going to get done unless we step up. We don't see God doing anything, so let's just come up with plan B. Plan B. That's the same thing as saying, look, I know that it looks like this. I know that, that uh, the church is a desert, and I know that the world is a desert out there. So what we need to do, it doesn't seem that there's any super bloom on the horizon, haven't even seen a cloud in the distance. Therefore, let's put together a, a strategy team and come up with a way to create a super bloom. That's ridiculous. It's impossible. It's nonsense. There is no plan B. Amen. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house those who build it will labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Unless the Lord shows up and the Lord does it, we are, we are on a treadmill going nowhere. There, there is only one plan. There's only always been one plan. It's the same plan from the beginning. Urgent, travailing, waiting, prayer, seeking God. That's it. The people contending for revival and spiritual awakening who dare not move until they have God's vision. Or better yet, until they have God. Seems like everybody shows up for planning meetings, but few people show up for prayer meetings these days. Seems to be the trend. We, we wonder why people of God don't experience revival and why the world around us is just getting worse. Oswald Chambers says, prayer does not fit us for, our, for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer comes at the expense of other things. And I'm sure Habakkuk had plenty of things he could have been doing other than posting himself in this tower, right? He could have been doing, I'm sure the people on the ground were thinking, man, that dude is crazy. He's always on that tower. He needs therapy. Right? I'm sure he was told, man, why don't you, instead of just standing there, why don't you do something? But there was nothing more important or with it would have been a greater use of his time than praying and waiting and listening 
for the voice of God. No prophet, no pastor, no worker, no Christian is greater than his or her prayer life. And prayer, man, prayer is not just simply talking to God, it's talking with God. We don't just simply, in prayer, it's not just simply us unloading our burdens on God. But God shares His burdens with us. Look at the world, look at my world. It's filled with lost people. Look at my church. My church is dried up. That's my heart. That's what I'm concerned about. He shares his burden with us. Pray about those things. God wants us to care about what he cares about when we pray. Proverbs 29:18 says, "Where there is no vision, the people perish." Amen. Yeah, that's that right there. That's one of the most abused, uh, probably one of the most abused uh, scripture verses in the past 20 years, for sure. Because the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew word for, for vision doesn't mean like a, a vision, like a business statement. It means a revelation, right? It means a word from God. It doesn't mean we need to come up with a vision statement, some kind of slogan to put on uh, our letterhead. It's not what it means. It means if we don't get a word from the Lord, that we're going to perish, so what does that kind of praying uh, sound like? Well, I want you to listen to Habakkuk's prayer in 3.2. I know I'm jumping ahead. We'll get there. But, but I just had to go there now because you just have to. Look at this prayer over in chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. Well, there's your prayer. There's a prayer for the church. Let me break it down for you. Lord, I have heard your, of your fame. That's expectation. I stand in awe of your deeds. That's exaltation. Lord, repeat them in our day. That's anticipation. In our day, make them known. That's participation. Because who's he going to make it known through? In wrath, remember mercy. That's purification. What a prayer. Habakkuk says, Lord, I'm not moving from this watchtower. I will stand here. I will kneel here. I will fall on my face here. And I won't be moved until I see you, until I have your vision. And God always is going to respond to that. God responds to prevailing prayer. We're not told how long uh, Habakkuk uh, travailed in prayer, was waiting on God on top of that tower. It might have been days. It might have been months. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. It might have been years. And you know during that time, you know that there were days when he was powerfully helped in prayer, overwhelmed by the Spirit of God in prayer where he could feel God's presence and he was greatly encouraged. But you also know there were other days when he prayed and God felt a million miles away. Days when he, he, he was like, I don't even have the strength to pray today, Lord. 
I'm, I'm so worn down. Days when he wondered if his prayers were even getting past the ceiling, wondering if he was just wasting his time. And man, we've all experienced that. We've all experienced the roller coaster of affections in prayer. I, I was reading this morning from David uh, Brainerd's uh, journal. He was like 28-year-old uh, missionary when he died of tuberculosis. And uh, man, his, you want to, I, I challenge you to read that uh, if you want to be greatly humbled. Uh, and I was reading it this morning, and I just was going through these 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 uh, entries into his journal, and he talks about, man, I, I prayed with the Lord this morning. It was such a sweet time. I felt God's presence. And then you look down, and he's got it, like, dated, you know, April 13th. And then you go down to April 20th. And he's like, man, I just, I prayed, and, and I f- could not feel the presence of God. And... Uh, I just felt dry and that God felt distant. And I read that and I go, that sounds like my prayer life. It's exactly what it feels like. But here's the thing, right? It's not about what we're feeling. It's simply about seeking God. Dallas Willard said, don't seek experiences with God. Seek God. And then you will encounter experiences along the way. Habakkuk, man, he never wavered. He waited. He prayed. He sought the Lord. He kept hoping. I said two weeks ago that I think the reason that prayer is so hard is because it's war. Because Satan opposes prayers. Because he knows that when prayers go up that his kingdom goes down. And this, you got to remain at the post. God is faithful. He, he meets us in our deepest struggles. That's what, what Johnny and D- Diana were talking about this morning. And, and, and finally, finally God comes and he meets Habakkuk on the tower. He came. He came. What did he say? I love this. Verse 2 and 3. Write down the revelation... And make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time and speaks to the end and will will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Write down a revelation. You know what the word revelation is? It's the word vision. It's the same one. It's the same exact word that you find over there in Proverbs 29, 18. Without a vision, the people perish without a revelation the people perish right here the same thing write it down here's your vision here's my word here's what you're to take to the people they're not going to perish even though the enemy is drawing near even though their exile is coming so what is this vision from the lord what is the vision that Habakkuk is finally given, that he finally sees. We're not told the entirety of the vision, but I believe verse 4 is a summary of the whole thing. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faith. Are you kidding me? 
right? Write this down, Habakkuk. Send out the heralds to proclaim it. They have good news to be spread. Tell everybody the day is coming. It's coming quick. Wait for it. It's not going to linger. Don't delay. Shout it from the rooftops. Right? The day is coming when the righteous will live by faith. Not by works, not by religion, not by sacrifices, not through making pilgrimages, but and not for the moral perfection that they are following the law, but by faith, by faith. That's true of Judeans, that's true of Babylonians, that's true of everybody. Who are these righteous that he speaks of who will live by faith? It is those who are living by faith. Right? They live by faith. They live by faith. It's not just a one-time decision that they prayed when they were little. No, they live by faith. They live every day in a righteousness that's not their own. Trusting in a redeemer instead of themselves. The enemies, he says, the enemies are puffed up. Right? They're arrogant. They're puffed up. They either think they don't need God at all or that they can gain God through their own efforts of being good enough. But the day is coming. The day is coming. And it won't be the Babylonians who prevail. But check this out. The day is coming when it won't be the, the Judeans that prevail either. No, they both will experience the same judgment. Religion isn't the way. Uh, but the true righteous will be those who live by faith. Amen. Like I said, man, we don't know. We don't know what the exact vision that God gave Habakkuk uh, to show to show that reality. That in the future, people will live by faith. But I just have this gut. I, I, I just have this, this feeling that maybe God showed him a stable. And showed him a, a, a baby born in Bethlehem. And then maybe God took him and, and he saw a man confronting religious leaders. A man eating and drinking with all the wrong people. And then I believe that he showed Habakkuk a hill. And there was a man, the son of God, surrounded by soldiers from another empire, not unlike Babylon. And this man's hanging on a cross, the son of God, dying for the sins of the world. And then perhaps he showed him an empty tomb that he had been resurrected. And then perhaps he saw a throne in heaven, a multitude of people from every tongue, race, nation, every people, Babylonians, Chaldeans, Israelites, people from, Babel, from, from, from Burleson, Texas. And he says, you see these? These are the righteous who live by faith. I, I, I think of that and I think, oh, what a beautiful vision. Is that not the same vision 
that God has given us to take to the world, to take to the nations. God has given us that vision. That is the gospel. That is the hope that the world needs. And as long as we continue to dry up and look like that, because we're not faithful to cry out to him and seek, seek him to come and pour forth his reign, then the gospel will just kind of look like that to the world. But man, if we cry out and we say, God, we can't do it. Only you come. Only you can come pour forth your rain into this dry wasteland again. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. We've heard of your, your greatness. We've heard of your faithfulness. We've heard of the things you've done in the past. We've heard of the deeds. We've read books about these stories of great revival. God, in our day, in our day, do this. Do this. Do it again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your uh, continued mercy unto us. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who is, is uh, holy, eternal, unchanging, uh, pure. And we thank you, Father, that you're also a God who is full of grace and mercy and holiness. And we see, see both of those things of holiness and, and, and mercy come together at Calvary where Jesus bore the wrath of a holy God and a love of a reconciling God. So Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and we thank you for that and we pray, Lord, make us a praying people. Father, put us, uh, make us a people on a watchtower who refuse to to move, to just cry out, to just pray and seek you to travail in prayer until we prevail with your vision. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're at a time of, of uh, singing and, and uh, responding uh, as one, you know, you come and pray here, I'll pray with you, whatever decision, if you got a decision you need to make, I'll be down here, you can come. If, if you just want to just simply uh, cry out to the Lord, man, you can do that where you're at or, or come to the altar. But we have to become, uh, above all things, above all things, a, a, a praying, a waiting, a seeking church upon the living God. You come.